Hello, and welcome to the Houston Experiment, a music podcast. My name is Greg Houston. I am a composer and founder of the Houston Experiment concert series, which holds multiple events in the New York City area per year. This podcast is for listeners who either work in the music industry, attend concerts, or just like to learn more about music in general. If you would like to become a sponsor for the Houston Experiment, please visit www.patreon.com slash Houston Experiment and become a member. If you like the podcast, please take a moment to rate the Houston Experiment on Apple Podcasts. Each rate and review will bring the Houston Experiment to a larger audience, which will greatly be appreciated. And welcome to episode two of the Houston Experiment podcast. Today's podcast will be with composer Alex Shapiro. I will be continuing my conversation with her about composition competitions. And for this episode, we're going to be really going in depth and talking about the math behind applying for a composition competition. And for all of you composers out there who have applied before, you're probably realizing that I'm going to be talking about fees. We are also going to be talking about alternatives composers can take in trying to get their music out there in the ever-crowded composition field. So let's get started, and I hope all of you enjoy. So the main part of this podcast that I wanted to talk to you about, Alex, was fees. And if you go on to many websites, um, one of them, the composer sites, or if you see advertisements posted in school, a lot of the times you'll see competitions that look really good, but they charge an exorbitant fees. So for people who are listening to this who aren't composers, it's pricey to enter these competitions because not only do you have to pay for a fee, but if you also win, you also have to pay for your travel expenses, food and lodging, so forth and so forth. I won a few competitions in my early career as a composer. The most prestigious one was a trip to Moscow where I had my music performed at the Moscow Conservatory. Fortunately for me, I did not have to pay for my travel and lodging. The, my, the school that I went to at the time did. But I did have to pay for the shipping of the parts. And for the shipping of the parts, not only do you have to print the parts, but you also have to ship them internationally, which is pretty expensive. So reading your article, Alex, really blew me away because you really go into details about the math and the finances of entering a competition. So... I was wondering if you could explain to the audience the process and just the financial hurdles that a composer has to take in entering a competition that some people, some organizations may already have a decision who who's going to yeah. win before it starts. And, you know, for people, I'm sure there'll be a link in the podcast to this article that we keep referring to because all the math and the true and the breakdown in great detail is there. And it is worth reading if you're interested in this. Um, but just to do a, an overview of it, you know, first of all, we're talking the, the biggest expenses if a competition uh, requires a physical 
presentation for uh, physical mailing. Fortunately, increasingly, even ones that used to, I'm seeing them finally turn the corner and they're saying, you know, PDF digital submissions for um, uh, both score and audio are fine. Thank goodness, because that automatically saves you. Let's start with what it saves you. Printing up a conductor score is really expensive. It's oversized paper. It's binding. It's going to a print shop. Most people have to do that, you know, to have this done. There's that expense. There's the, and they don't want parts, thankfully. But then there's the CD. If people still used to want, until recently, wanted physical media. And so you've got, you know, buying the CDs, getting the CD label, getting, having a printer that can print the labels on, et cetera, if you're going to make it look professional. The CD case. Then we're talking about the mailing bags. Those padded envelopes are expensive. Then, of course, we're talking. Just to stop you really quick, I just sorry I'm interrupting, but there are organizations that are still asking for CDs. I saw one a year and a half ago or two years ago. I don't, I'm hoping that by this point in 2021, no one is daring to ask for a CD anymore. I'm hoping that at this point, no one's asking for physical materials. I mean, I just think that's, it's, it's ridiculous. Um, it, yeah, because most computer laptops that are coming out today don't even have like a CD drive. I know. And like my computer actually has one, but I haven't used it in four yeah, years. Yeah, and my, none of my computers have CD drives. Exactly. It's an archaic thing. Um, but I have seen, you know, remember a lot of these competitions, very much like some academia, are older than we are. <laughs> and they haven't exactly stayed current with, you know, how things work. And they think this is all just fine and dandy, um, you know, some of them. Um, it's, it's being out of touch, but yeah, the, you know, then we get obviously, you know, the cost of the postage, uh, the time out of your life to do this. And, and, oh my gosh, if they want an, an anonymous score, then the time it takes to, you know, cover up with labels or whatever, uh, all the little places where your copyright or your program notes or your, you know, your you-ness shows up, uh, the whole thing is just backbreaking and, and really, really silly. And then, and then of course, the self-addressed uh, stamped envelope, uh, all the money that you have to give them ahead of time so that these materials are returned to you. And then the biggest insult is after presenting them all these materials, because this, I, you know, 25 years ago, whatever, I was in this position. I, I've, I saw this happen more than once. I'm sent back the materials that I paid to, um, you know, have sent back to me. And they're basically unusable because they've all been, of course, rifled through and marked and whatever. And um, so all they are is a demo score for me. You know, I can't even uh, use the score professionally. So it's an extremely expensive proposition when anybody wants something uh, physical. But even when, let's let's get down to the gritty and the nitty, shall we? Even when uh, fees, even let's say if it's a competition, like maybe the majority finally are, uh, where they only want digital submissions, but they're still charging you, let's say 25 bucks. I just, one came across today that was, they had two competitions. I just, I forwarded it to you in an email, by the way. Yeah. yeah. Um, because it, it rankled me. Uh, they had two competitions. One was a cheapie for 10 bucks you could submit. The other one was 20 bucks for one piece and 30 bucks for two pieces. And fortunately it was digital materials. But again, I, you know, I did the math and they said on their website, I went, I was curious because this is the kind of thing that annoys me. <laughs> so I take the time to look. Um, I went to the website and I saw that they were boasting about they had over 150 applicants, you know, uh, last time. And all these 150 applicants, of course, paid between 20 and $30 each, right? So we are now well over $3,000 that this ensemble got. Well, what, nowhere on the website does it say how the ensemble used the money. 
where, what are they doing with this money? So let's say they're very well-intentioned, I'm sure. I'm, I always give everybody the benefit of the doubt. I think they just want to play really cool new music that they discover. But they are using the composer's money to mount their concert. Let's assume they're using that three or $4,000 to pay the musicians, pay the venue, pay for the cheap wine at intermission, whatever. You know, that is how the money's being spent. Only five composers were chosen. Uh, and each year it's for five composers are chosen on both of these uh, that I just mentioned because I just looked at it today. Uh, and if you have 150 people submitting, <laughs> that's a hundred. Like a lottery. That's a, talk about the lottery, folks. These are not odds that are, that you really want. And so if you want to go in, as I say in the article, if you feel like subsidizing someone else's concert, good for you. That is lovely. I give money to things all the time. I commission other composers. I participate. I think it's really important to do that. But go in with your eyes wide open because I guarantee you that most, if not all, of these comp of these um, calls for scores are not listing your name along with all all the other 149 people who produced the concert. And you should be listed. And if you're not being listed, and if you're an ensemble member listening to this, please list the people who entered and sent you money, because that money, I'm guessing, is going toward putting on your concert and the recording expenses and all the other expenses that you genuinely have to put on a concert. I'm not questioning how expensive it is to do this. I'm, I'm questioning transparency and the lack thereof, that it should always be on every competition or call for score web presence. It should always say, this is what our money is going to. Um, and then, frankly, the question I really always want to ask every ensemble that does this is, okay, you've been transparent, let's say, and we know where your money's going. That's nice. Why do you choose to ask composers, many of whom are having, you know, are having a hard time rubbing a couple of dimes together? Why do you choose to coax composers to spend you money to enter a very high-risk, high-odds lottery, when in fact you should be garnering uh, patronage from your regional uh, uh, you know, fans and patrons who might be in a better position to help you mount your concert? Why are you not putting effort to, to, to have patronage and support the business that you're trying to run. Because if you're putting on concerts, you're running a business. I don't care how fabulous a instrumentalist you are, an ensemble you are. It's a business when we're putting on concerts. We all know this. You should not be getting your patronage and your, your financing for your concerts from all the composers who are not on your concerts. And frankly, even from the composers who are on your concerts, they're already sending you free scores that you're probably not paying for. Here's, I'm, I'm ranting at this point, <laughs> but I'm, I'm going for it, Greg, because this is really upsetting to me. And the best thing we can do, we can never tell anybody. I'm not going to tell anybody, don't enter competitions and certainly don't enter ones with fees. But what we can do and what you're doing with this podcast, Greg, and with your teaching, it's so important. We can educate people and let them know what their options are and open their eyes to how this is really works and let them make their own decisions. You know, if they have a lot of money to throw around and want to enter all these expensive competitions, good for them. Let them do that. Um, some of these competitions people roll their eyes at because they know that they're, they're not only expensive, 40, 50 bucks a pop, but everybody seems to get a prize and, you know, it's, it's not very legitimate and it's not taken seriously, you know, by, by people. Um, but still people enter and it makes them feel good and makes them feel good to win or get honorable mention or whatever they get. Good for them. There's no harm if they have the 50 bucks to, you know, drop like that. But again, I, I want to put the onus on the ensembles when they're doing calls for scores 
why, you know, they can save themselves a lot of grief and hassle if they just take the time to discover on their own voices that are going to appeal to them that they're going to want to program. And there's so many ways to do that, including Facebook crowdsourcing. I just saw something this past week, which was lovely. It's an ensemble looking for a certain kind of piece, and they put it out there saying, hey, who's, who's got some? Who want to, you know, let us know? That was perfectly nice. It's a nice way to use uh, social media. But the other thing is the financing. Your job as an ensemble is, of course, is to raise money. And that's not the most fun part of the job. <laughs> I'd rather, you know, be practicing some really thorny parts of a piece than, than, you know, having to raise money. But that's the job if you're going to do this. And do not go to your colleagues for the money. Go to build your fundraising, build your patronage. Yeah, that has been a major head scratcher for me. And I always ask the question, you know, is it even worth it spending, you know, $25, $50 to enter a competition? I mean, I've paid to enter a competition before. I think the maximum I ever spent was anywhere between 10 and $20. And even then, that was very questionable in itself. And honestly, I can understand why some composers would do it because, you know, raising money for a concert series that I run, is very hard. And I rely a lot on Patreon, GoFundMe, um, and Facebook and so forth and so forth to raise money. And it's very stressful and very tedious. But on the other end, you know, you enter these competitions and the money that you're going to get back from some of these things is not a lot. It could range anywhere between $100 and $500. Yeah, if there's prize money. If it's not just a call for scores, but if it's a competition, sure. Yeah. 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 And it's like, it's not really a guarantee that you're not really going to make a lot of money. And honestly, this is where the math comes in because... You know, you enter this competition, you pay a fee, but you also have to put into the fact that if you do win, the cost that you'll have to spend on top of that. So you would have to spend like upwards. Well, first, you'd have to spend money to print and send the parts to the musicians. That costs a lot. And if you're writing an orchestra piece, that's even more money, you know, to print the parts and so forth. Then you would have to consider if you're trapped to travel, you have to pay for traveling costs, especially if you're going to Europe and especially if you're going to Europe during the summer, it's very expensive to fly. So, you know, unless you sign up for a website such as cheapair.com or one of those um, airline sites where you get an alert at 2 a.m. in the morning saying, for five minutes, you know, you can buy a round trip ticket to Croatia or somewhere like that for about $300. That's really your only way to save money. So you have to put in travel costs, you have to put in room and board, you have to pay for the cost to send your score and parts to the organization for them to perform. So that's already a lot of money that you're not going to recoup back, even if you do win a competition, unless the prize money is $1,000 or more, which I don't really see that much these days. Another aspect is there are competitions, and shockingly, I've seen this before, that actually ask you to have actual recordings. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah, and like these recordings are recordings that 
um, aren't from a performance, so you have to spend even more money to get a nice, clear-cut recording of your piece. And also, it, it cannot be performed. That's another thing that I've seen before. So that's even more money that you have to spend. Oh, it's insane. Yeah, and so that's the recording cost, depending on the size of your ensemble. I mean, I'm going to give a rough estimate that could start anywhere between $600 and just keep going up there. So the price of entering a competition is ridiculously high and you're not really going to get this Is this money for back. instrumentalists or composers? All of wow. the above. That is outrageous. You know, you, you mentioned something before that is a bit, a big pet peeve of mine, um, that I hope I put in the article. I don't remember about the, the concept of some of these competitions want, want pieces that are unpublished, that have never been premiered and never been published. I hope I wrote about that because that's insane. And I have written to uh, organizations to say, why in the world would you put that ridiculous limitation? On. I mean, that, it, that makes no sense at all, unless you're only looking for amateur music, because any, you know, people who actually write good music are getting it performed. And wouldn't you be fortunate enough to program that music on your, um, on your thing? And unless you're paying them a commission fee, you know, to, to say that a piece can't have been published is the most unprofessional thing. Uh, I have actually talked to organizations out of that on a number of occasions and said, don't do that. That is, that is just pointless. That's terrible. Yeah. And, you know, going back to our conversation earlier, me writing that piece for that Midwestern composition competition that never really saw the light of day, it's very discouraging to really put all of your hard-earned energy and time to write a composition that most likely probably not even going to get looked at. So, and if you really want to hear either a very funny story, Alex, or a very scary story, a couple of years ago, you know, I saw a competition where the organization asked for the parts right when you send. Oh, the my score. gosh, that's crazy. Yeah. And as someone who worked as an orchestra librarian for a couple of years, I mean, I know firsthand, you know, creating parts is a very tedious process to do. They have no right to ask for the parts until they're going to program the piece. I mean, that's just ridiculous. And and again, they're not even buying the piece from from the composer, which is also very problematic as far as I'm concerned. I mean, it's just very disrespectful to the composer. They're playing on the composer's utter desire, you know, to have a performance at all costs. And and since we're talking about the economics, let's talk about that discrimination. Because you are basically you're saying only trust fund babies need apply, right? I mean, how many composers of any color, of any background, how many composers have this kind of money lying around to be able to do it? And then we wonder why the feed, feed why the field tends to look a little, you know, homogenous in certain ways, right? Uh, a lot of reasonably well-heeled white guys, for starters, because they're the ones, you know, that either come from the right families or whatever that can afford to to do this kind of stuff. And and it's it's totally imbalanced, and it shuts out the possibility of all this wonderful music coming from all kinds of other people who uh, otherwise might be able to apply if the if the uh, restrictions weren't so ridiculous. One another one to th toss into the pot of 
of ridiculous uh, things is there was a a New York um, festival that was I believe that not only was there an entry entry fee, uh, and this was for um, a piece that let's just say didn't require musicians as far as I recall, uh, it was electronic. And I believe that if your piece got selected, even if you couldn't make it to New York to be there, which was their semi-requirement, that you still had to pay like 150 bucks or some amount, notable amount of money, as I recall, for to have the piece on the program. And I just thought, really, you know, again, why why are you taking your funding from the very composers you're claiming to support? You need to raise money and do it in the proper way from patrons and and other other ways. Don't don't be doing this to composers. This is to me, it was just wrong. And again, it's also very limiting because you're only going to get composers who have that kind of money to toss around and pay to play. It's all pay to play. All these, but it's pay to play with no guarantee, at least with a record, with an indie record label that wants to charge you, you know, five, six grand to, you know, print your and uh, publish your CD. And, uh, at least you know what you're getting. You're getting a product <laughs> and, so, and you know, you're getting something you can sell. You can, you're getting something for that money. But when under all the things you just listed, Greg, you know, this long conversation, you're you're flinging all this into the ether and not getting usually anything for it. There's no guarantee of getting anything. And uh, it's it's just a very bum deal for composers. Yeah, it's a tough pill to swallow because. You know, the reality is, is that entering composition competitions these days is really for elitist or trust fund babies. And to be honest, Alex, the industry that you and me are in is the good old boys network. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it sure does. Yeah. And that's basically the reality that me and you are in and a lot of people are in. So I have a friend, you know. To get an opinion from the other side, I have a friend who runs an ensemble and does do composition competitions and charges exorbitant amount of fees, which honestly is way too much for my taste. But I asked him, why does he charge these insane fees? And he said that he charges these fees because it helps weed out composers who might not be serious in entering the competition, which I disagree because it doesn't matter if you're rich, poor, whatever. If you hand in a good score, you hand in a good score. And to talk about age discrimination, these fees really shut out a lot of people who otherwise are qualified. Absolutely. And frankly, they're also too smart to throw their money into the abyss like that and, and do such a thing. You know, it's just, it's just, it's insulting. It's insulting to be as I'm insulted at even seeing $10 calls for scores, although that's my, that's like the top that I can stomach. But when I see 20 and up, it just, it makes me bristle because I know how many $20 bills they're getting, so to speak, you know, and, and how those add up fast. And they're not being transparent about where that money is going. And they're not being honest with the composers. And they're not crediting the composers for funding the festivals. So I want to get into the last part of our discussion. And before we get there, one thing I wanted to ask you is, well, there's a common myth among composers in that if you win a composition competition, you will basically be either the prince or princess of the composition world. In reality, and now we're in reality, 
if you win a composition competition, does it really guarantee you a successful and long-lasting career in our Not field? at all, because there are plenty of Pulitzer Prize winners. I bet people can't even remember their names. Um, and there are some, you know, for whom it's done wonders. I, I think this is true with all the comp- all the competitions. You know what? If you want to get your name out there, uh, shiny competition or not, <laughs> again, it goes back to what I said before. Get yourself out there. Make relationships. Be a positive force in the music field. Be someone that people smile when they think of your name and look forward to talking to and seeing and inviting in, you know, to participate in things. That's what's going to build your career. Whether or not you have won a competition uh, is not going to impact that very much. If you have won a big fancy competition and you are not part of the fabric of your community, if you're just hanging out alone all the time and not, you know, not making an effort to be part of the uh, world around you. I don't think that competition is really going to ultimately do you that much good. It will put you in some record book, you know, on, on Wikipedia that, that, you know, their, their list of winners, that's very nice, but it's not going to build your career. The only, the people don't come calling on people just because they, they want a competition. They come calling on people. They seek people out when they hear music that they really love or when they've run into them and really enjoyed talking to them and, and want to know more about their music. Uh, because they think the person is interesting. Uh, there are a million reasons why someone's going to be drawn to a composer, but it, I, I really don't think it's going to be because you won the, you know, put your shiny award name here, you know. It's really, really not it. It's really not it. Um, this is the real world. Uh, I think, yes, if you're pursuing academia, there are plenty of uh, factions of academia uh, that find these awards absolutely fascinating and important. And But again, that's a very insular bubble. That's not how many of these composers are relating to the world around them and and getting broader performances of their works, you know, in a very, very small number. Uh, If you stay within the protective bubble of academia, there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not being uh, disrespectful about that. There's nothing wrong with it, but it is a protective insular bubble. It's an echo chamber. All everybody's kind of you know talking to each other all the time, um, and that's a very comfortable thing. It's it's a comfortable environment, but it is not the bigger picture of the bigger world. Now, what is going on with the whole idea of academia and peer reviews in the composition department? Is this recent? I never. I believe it's an old thing that's gone on for a very long time. This whole peer review thing, but uh, I am not a faculty member, so I can't speak to it directly. But my faculty member friends have told me about it. uh, In fact, and it was, and in the article, I uh, uh, she didn't want to be uh, quoted, you know, attributed, but it was a colleague and friend of mine who is on faculty at a wonderful school who was kind of cluing me in about how unfortunate it is that there is such an old school approach in some schools, not all, but on some faculty and in some pro- programs that they really think that being published uh, is is a big deal or that winning certain awards is a big deal. They somehow think that that's the marker of excellence in, as a composer, as opposed to many uh, other people like me tend to think the marker of excellence uh, as a composer is actually having your music performed a lot and people wanting to hear it and people wanting to purchase it and all that. That's kind of a, a good marker as far as I'm concerned. Um, so, and there's lots of pieces that have been turned down time and time again for awards that get performed an awful lot. And I, and I say this also to these people listening again, who are at the, maybe at the beginning or middle of their careers and wanting to go further, never, ever, ever try not to be thwarted uh, by, by not winning something. It, it is 
absolutely immaterial to your worth as a composer. Just, I know it, you know, it hurts when we are rejected. It absolutely hurts. It's a human emotion. Um, but it is not about you. There, as Greg said earlier, there are many, many reasons why uh, your music might not have uh, been the selection du jour for that panel. And and just keep moving forward and just make sure you get your music out there because you are the winner of the Your Name Here Award. I am not joking. You have already won that award. If you take care of yourself, if you run your your business and your career and you get out there and you're doing the work, you are the winner of the most important award. And that is the one that counts. Right. I know that peer reviews in general are quite intense in academia. And I don't honestly don't even want to know what it's like in composition. Um, and it kind of goes back to what I keep asking my students when they write is, well, who are you writing for? And I could only imagine that doing peer reviews and composition must be even more rigid and intense because really what it is, it, it depends on where you are, but in essence, you are really writing for your colleagues in a sense, which could hamper your creative ability, I would assume. Now, hopefully, hopefully you're lucky enough to have colleagues that, you know, are expansive in their tastes and will appreciate what you do. But I'm sure that there, I'm, there are probably some listeners who can point to examples where, uh, you know, someone did not have colleagues that got and resonated with their work at all and didn't appreciate it. And yeah, that's terrible. You're absolutely right. It's a terrible position to be in. Yeah, agreed. So let's move on. Oh, one thing I wanted to ask you, what is this whole idea of composition competitions asking for some sort of ID or passport? I'd never heard of this before. This usually happens. I only saw that once or twice and the, and I used the, um, the, uh, uh, poster child of bad competitions unnamed, you know, that I used for a number of my examples in that article was I was shocked to see that. It was just completely outrageous. And I wrote them. I said, absolutely not. That is that is a total invasion. Um, yeah, I was shocked to see that. There, there should never be. No one should ever. If you're listening to this, do not ever. If you choose to pay to enter a competition, fine. But do not give them your identification, your social security, or your password, pass, or your um, passport information. Absolutely not. Until you, unless you're the winner, you know, then they need your social security number to be able to 1099 you for the money that they've given you. You know, that's legit because it's a tax thing. But until you have one, you don't give them any of that personal information. Yeah, that was concerning for me because I was a victim of identity theft a couple of years ago. And reading your article, that really, you know, my eyes almost came out of my head reading that because if you give any organization any sort of identification, whether it be a social security card or whatever, that could basically ruin your life. It's ridiculous. And careful. nobody nobody has a right to that information except the IRS, you know, and your employers. <laughs> I mean, it's that simple. Yeah. All right. So we talked about the problems with composition competitions. We talked about the math, the judging process, et cetera, et cetera. For the final part of this conversation, this is what I suspect many of you listening want to know is what are the alternatives to composition competitions? Well, Alex, I have some ideas that I wanted to share with you about possible solutions. And they aren't really solutions. They're more problems with um, composers today. 
And one problem is, is that a lot of composers I found don't like talking about their music. And I found this out through a concert series that I hold um, every year. And during the intermission, I hold a composer's forum where the composers can talk about their music and the audience can ask questions. And I always found that this was very fruitful and beneficial because the audience can have a better description of what it is that they're listening to. And this helps bridge the gap between, I think, between composer, performer, composer, and the audience, which is widespread. Yeah. And I learned this when I went to Europe. And after I was done performing, people in the audience would come up and ask specific questions. It really made me wonder why this doesn't happen here in the United States. And here you have audience members just come, listen, clap, and then go home and there is just such a divide between that and it leaves you I, i'm trying to describe yeah. it's very it. passive yeah yeah it, it is more passive so it kind of baffles me that there are some composers who not only don't want or not only don't like to really talk about their music but there are some that don't even like to go to their own premieres and for me 98% of my performances and my premieres was from going to previous concerts and talking to other conductors and other musicians who were interested in my music. Now, I understand that if you have a performance in Singapore and you were in New York City, that it's going to be pretty hard to go. And I totally understand that. But if you have a premiere that's very close by and you don't want to go, you're really missing out on a very important market opportunity to meet other people, which could lead to future performances. I don't know why this is a problem. I mean, maybe because I worked in sales and I was used to talking to people and, you know, selling what it is that I have to sell. But talking about your music and really attending concerts and greeting the musicians, the audience, and so forth is a very important essential for every composer to really learn. And this is really the entrepreneurship aspect. Yeah. You know, that people have Absolutely. to learn. Absolutely. And, you know, and the attending concerts thing starts again, we're back to the being human part of meeting people and hanging out with people and, and having them get to know you as a person. They are probably going to be much more interested in your music after they've, you know, met you and after they've had a chance to chat with you. And maybe they've invited you to, you know, go across the street for the after, after concert hang, you know, and that's when a lot of relationships are established and, and trust is established. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's wonderful and it gives you an opportunity. You know, when you meet these, uh, these musicians, let's say you can hand them a, a business card at the end of the evening. If, if, if it's clear that that's appropriate and they'd like to stay in touch and it gives you an opportunity to follow up in a really friendly email the next day or two to say, Hey, it was so great to hear you play and to meet you. And here's, you know, if you're curious, here's a link to the piece we, that I mentioned, uh, um, you know, just be very cool about it. Very chill. You know, don't be like jumping down their throat trying to sell your music, but you can certainly show them uh, something that you might have mentioned to them. And it's to it's a very elegant way to do it. Um, yeah. So I wanted to get your opinion on something. And this is 
the reason why I started the Houston experiment was because I had no other avenue to get my compositions performed. And there were a ton of composers who are getting their music rejected too. And one of the things that by doing the Houston experiment has really helped and benefited me over these past few years that I have done this is that in all honesty, it frees you up to basically write whatever it is that you want to write. Absolutely. Yeah. So what would your advice be for young and aspiring composers in starting their own musical series? Now, this is an area, because I'm not a performer, that I don't have any any particularly pithy advice other than certainly, as with anything, in addition to writing really good music and having wonderful uh, co-performers, you know, in your ensemble, uh, that all of you need to share the burden of being the business people to raise the money for those concerts and promote them and all the things that go into having a successful series, which you obviously know very well. And I, I think that usually what I've seen, what I've observed is that there tends to be one lead person in an ensemble that tends to be kind of the brains of the, and the admin of the, of the group that takes care of a lot of that stuff. But as I think as communal as, the decision-making and participation can be, the better I would imagine because it takes some of the load off of everybody. Um, but I think I think that composers who are performers have a great advantage and composers who are conductors for that matter. Uh, people who do who compose and do something else that gets them in front of audiences and gets their music in front of audiences and also gets their colleagues' music in front of audiences as well, you know, which builds the joy. That is a really terrific position to be in. I missed out on that one. <laughs> yeah. And one other thing I'd like to add to uh, starting your own concert series is that you don't have to be like extremely unique. Um, and what I mean by unique is that you take a sledgehammer and you bash it into a wall and a bunch of holes would be there. But that would be really <laughs> cool to see. But think of something that you want to do that maybe a lot of other ensembles aren't doing. And this is where the research part comes in. And I'll give you like a really good example. I knew a friend who I went to school with who was a cellist and he started his own ensemble and they had a concert where they performed chamber music by opera composers, which I didn't even know existed. They did chamber music from I believe Wagner, Rossini, and I even think they even did chamber music by Gustav Mahler, which again, I didn't know existed. And a lot of and it created a buzz and a lot of people wanted to go and check out, you know, what type of chamber music Rossini or Puccini wrote, you know, because they're so well known for writing their um timeless operas. So it was pretty interesting to really see that so just wanted to add that in so one other thing i wanted to ask you alex and this is something that a lot of composers kind of think that they kind of well i don't, I don't want to say they thumb their nose to it but they don't really do because they think that this will be dead on arrival is writing letters to conductors and i have done this a couple of times and in fact i've done it I think I believe 20 times and in those 20 times I probably got eight responses and maybe 
five that's great i think that's good odds yeah yeah so it was it was pretty good odds so i wanted to ask you have you written a lot to ensembles and if so on average about how much how many performances did you get out of those it was a pretty good ratio now when i was doing this it was 20 years ago it was it was a while ago um and i was doing it with chamber music and i would find i would send uh there you know there wasn't as much noise on the internet back then remember it was a different time but uh i would send out you know 10 emails uh maybe 15 emails a week uh, over the course of a few days you know just do a little research and find people if i had a new trio or something and i would hear back probably out of 10 i think i heard back from 7 and out of 7 i probably got four or five uh performances recordings etc and there's a good odds and um, so, yeah, I, I found it to work really well. And those relationships often led to commissions. They often led to lifelong friendships. I mean, many of the people that I first was in contact with that way from cold emailing them with just a very pleasant, nice, short email, not bludgeoning, you know, just really short to the point, very pleasant with a link to the one piece that I wanted them to hear. You know, you don't send them your whole catalog or a website link. That's not a good way to do this. But for those of you who are building your careers, uh, you know, make sure you have, this is why, by the way, it's important to have a website and not just social. You know, social media is really important beyond all the platforms, but the website is where you control everything and someone who actually wants to know um, more about you and your catalog is going to go there to read your bio and to look at your works catalog. When they go to your works catalog, Make sure that they can click on every individual piece, which will lead them, I think, is a nice design, leads them to a new page that is devoted to that piece where they can see some of the score and listen to it and read all the perform, you know, the performance information about it, the publishing information. Anything you want them to know about that piece um, should be on that page. What this gives you is a tool that when you want to do, as Greg and I have just talked about, you know, when you want to kind of hold email uh, an ensemble or a conductor or whomever, uh, and let them know about a particular work. It gives you that tool to say, you know, below is a, is a link to a piece that uh, might be of interest to you. Uh, and if it is, I look forward to staying in touch, you know, whatever, in, you know, after your niceties at the beginning of the email. And it works really well because you're giving them one thing they're probably going to click because it's very pointed and focused. And then when they click, they get to hear it, see it, feel it, touch it. You know, they get all the information they need to know about it and they can make a decision right then and there if it's right for them. I have to tell you, I am still such good friends and, and colleagues with so many people that I did this with, you know, many, many, many years ago. It really did open up a lot of doors for me. Uh, it was beautiful, very positive experience. So I do recommend that. You know, the trick is just make sure you're elegant and kind and, um, you know, and short. You don't have to go on and on. Don't overwhelm anybody. <laughs> Yeah, like maybe write like a few sentences yeah, at best. Exactly. You know. Yeah, um yeah, one thing I'd like to add is that when you do write to these conductors and ensembles, do the research for what they're very programming. important. That's that's the key thing. Yep. Yeah, so um I clear a great example that I have is that a couple of years ago I wrote this holiday piece and it was for a symphony orchestra. And I had one performance of it, and I decided to email a conductor of a local orchestra of mine. And what I did, I sent a very short, to-the-point email, sent him the link. He looked at it, and he really liked what he heard, or liked what he heard, and he said, let's do go. it. 
bingo. That's just it. Always know to whom you're writing. That's the key thing. And if you, you know, if you, if you, as I was saying earlier in this program, if you, you're Googling and finding ensembles around the world, maybe, you know, that, that have your instrumentation, whatever, great, but make sure you listen to or read their repertoire list or whatever. Make sure you get a good bead on what they actually do and what they like, because you have to make sure you, you think that you'll be a good fit for them. Um, and there's nothing wrong with not being a good fit. You just don't send them the email because it's, you're wasting everybody's time. Uh, usually ensembles are pretty, it's pretty evident what kind of scope uh, they have, what, what interests they have musically. Um, yeah. So we have reached the end of this podcast and I had a very enjoyable time talking to you, Alex, about this. So what I want to do now is just to have you close out this podcast with just advice for the, I don't know how many composers who are listening to this, but a lot of them have applied for competitions who have, they have gotten rejected. They're trying to find ways on how to get their music out there. And it's very, very hard to do. So I am going to leave you with the final word and any advice that you have for them would be beneficial. So I give you the absolute floor to close it go. out. It is so much fun to talk to you because I feel like we're two peas in a pod. You know, we're so like-minded on, on this stuff, Greg. It's really been a pleasure talking with you. Uh, my advice uh, is basically the same advice I would give myself at the, you know, it's, it's endless advice, which is, First of all, always be kind and be gracious and be thoughtful about other people. And that that is just a wonderful way to go through life, and especially as an artist, because we don't do this in a bubble. We This is a social field, and, and being connected to other people is a very, very big part of of the success of our music, you know, it's, has, it's, unless you're only doing electronic music that nobody else has to play, you're just pro programming it in your studio. You need people <laughs> to bring your notes to life. Um, those notes should always be authentic to you and never think for a second that you have to sound like somebody else just because they sound really cool or they're really successful or whatever you, the reason that you, and now I'm talking to any of the listeners who are composers, the reason you are pursuing this is because you love to write music, I hope, uh, and because you have something to say that is unique to you, that is burning in you, that you want to communicate, because that's why we write music, you know, for all those times when we don't have words, you know, we can't find the words, but we can find the music. And that is so personal to every single individual composer. No two should sound alike. Everybody is different as a human being, and our music is different. And that's what makes the field so beautiful. There is room for everybody. And there is there should not be any sense of competition with other composers. There is enough opportunity for everybody because we can make the opportunities. We can create them. I said recently on a on a, pod, a podcast or a webcast or something, I said, I said, you know, people sometimes have this scarcity mentality, which is a very negative thing. And they somehow think there are only X number of slices in a pie. My attitude is bake more pies. You can have as many pies as you want. Keep making the pies or sl and slice it up as many times as you want. You know, it's endless. And the more we help other people and our colleagues and our fellow composers, the more we help them. And when we discover something that works for us, the more we share that information and give them the same tools that might work for them too. When we help other people, we are helping the arts. We're helping everyone. 
And ultimately, that boomerangs back to you as a composer, because the better that everybody does in the arts, the better you're going to do. Because especially in the United States, uh, we have a problem in this country. We, the arts are not fully embraced as much as they should be, right? And that is up to us to change that. You know, we no one's going to give that to us. We have to participate in our society, support each other, and allow the arts to continue to thrive and flourish. And we have to do that as a group and, inter and, and um, you know, with each other, not against each other. So there is no competition. We are in this together. That's my advice and my thoughts to wrap up the, uh, the wonderful podcast that you've led. It's great. And that is going to be the end of this podcast. Alex, it has been a pleasure talking to you, especially after 20 years. It's been a pleasure talking to you about this subject, and I wish you all the best, and we will be talking soon. It's such a pleasure to connect with you, really. Likewise, I mean, you're just great. So I thank you for you. reaching out to me and uh, inviting me to do this. You too. Absolutely. Be very well, Greg, okay? Stay well. And that concludes my conversation with composer Alex Shapiro. This has been a very interesting conversation that I had with her, and I learned a lot about just the process of applying, judging, and trying to win a composition competition, but most importantly, just learning about alternatives composers can take in getting their music out there, and I think that's a very important thing. So next week, I will be meeting with composer Alexandra Lewis from Brooklyn College, and we will be discussing Maurice Ravel's many attempts at trying to win the Prix de Rome. This will be a two-part episode, and I am very looking forward to it. And after listening to this, you will have a much better understanding of Ravel, not only the composer, but just the person in general. So until next week, I will see you all then. And that concludes the Houston Experiment podcast. As a reminder, if you would like to become a sponsor, please visit www.patreon.com slash Houston Experiment and become a member. If you like the show, please take a moment and go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review the Houston Experiment. Each review helps bring the Houston Experiment podcast to a larger audience, which will greatly be appreciated.